This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, and welcome to the Monday Late Show with me, Hannah Wilson. Slightly later than normal this week, but that's because you're in for a treat. I am co-hosting tonight with Catherine Taylor because we have special guest on Peter Hughes, who's going to be talking about his new book, Outstanding School Leadership, which is out on the 7th of December. So feel free to add in your messages and join in the show. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good evening and tonight our show is brought to you by Bloomsbury Education where you can buy Peter Hughes's new book Outstanding School Leadership. It's available on the 7th of December but if you pre-order it they will give you 35% off uh, using the code Hughes35 H-U-G-E-S-35 and that will give you 35% off if you order before the 7th of December. So I think Catherine is here. I am here. Um, yes. Hello. hello. Uh, so we're just waiting for Peter to join in the call, but I'm really excited about um, this uh, show tonight because I've thoroughly enjoyed reading the book. My actual physical copy arrived today. Me too. So yes. um, <laughs> I was like, I've actually got it to hold. Um, so it's it's been great to read. I believe that's Peter. Are you there? I think you can hear me now. Yes. Perfect, yes. Welcome, welcome. Oh, well, thank you, thank you. Do you want to start by kind of giving us uh, a little bit of an introduction to yourself and what brought you to kind of write this book? Uh, well, yeah, so my name is Peter Hughes. I'm the CEO of the uh, Mossbourne Federation of Schools, uh, which is two secondaries and two primaries in East London. A little more famous for my predecessor. Uh, some of you mm-hmm. may have heard of him, Sir Michael Wilshaw. Um, apparently, he was well known uh, at some <laughs> point in time. Uh, and, um, yeah, and I'm also the founder of a, a teaching platform called Progress Teaching, which is about teaching and uh, all about improving teaching. And I'm a maths teacher, but I came over to the UK back in 2001. Uh, I came to travel for a year. Uh, 20 years later, I'm still here. And I just love it. I love teaching here. I love teaching in London. I love the UK. And what brought me to write a book? Well, I just think after 20 years and then going through that experience and we're about to expand again, I was rethinking about what it was, what made uh, Mossbourne special, what was it about my journey uh, that I wanted people to know. And it was really just the time to share that with everyone out there. Because your your book is a little bit different to normal kind of, I think, leadership books in in the sense that it's quite personal. And that that's what I really liked about it. So kind of the structure of the book is that you kind of have a little introduction to your different chapters, but then you have what's called the yarn, which is an Australian term. Hmm. Um, yes. Yeah, go. Sorry. No, I was going to let you explain. <laughs> You're probably doing that better than me. <laughs> yeah. So a yarn is just a story. So I did my first year of teaching uh, in a place called Burke. And the best way to describe Burke is it's a thousand kilometers inland from Sydney. 
Um, and, you know, when you talk about that sort of scale, I think I'd be halfway, if not, I wouldn't be in Italy if I left London and travelled a thousand kilometres. And you're not even out of New South Wales yet, so you haven't even left the state. And I remember sort of driving out there. This gives you an idea of what a yarn is and why uh, time has a different sort of element to it when you're out in the outback. And I was driving along this road. If you ever look at a map, there's a place called Ningen and Burke, and they're, they're 200, uh, sort of about 200 miles apart. And the road's dead straight. You can put a ruler on it on a map. And I was driving along this road, and I'd been going for, you know, about two hours. And I get to this road, and I sort of cross over the railway line, take the first corner in what feels like about two hours. And as I get there, and it says, welcome to the gateway to the outback. And I thought to myself, I'm, I'm from country New South Wales, and I feel like I've just walked through the outback. Like, that is 200, 200 miles of dead straight road. And this is the beginning of where the Australian outback starts. And that's the point at which they stop tarring the roads. They're just like, yeah, we don't have any tar from here. You can just drive on the dirt. You'll be fine. And when you're out that far, kind of you, you, you pass somebody maybe once a day. You know, you could drive along a road. And in that 200 kilometers, I might have passed one, maybe two cars in two hours of driving. So when you do see somebody or you know somebody or you say hello, then telling a yarn or, or telling a story and having a bit of time to do so, it's kind of important because who's in a rush to get anywhere, right? Where are you going to go anyway, even if you are going there? So a yarn's a sort of a story, this kind of thing that captures your your imagination for a period of time before you go about the rest of your day. And for me, a yarn doesn't always get to the point straight away. Like all good stories, they say, show, don't tell. Uh, and for me, that's really important. Yeah, I wouldn't say, oh, it's raining outside. If we're talking to a child or teaching a kid how to write something, we describe the rain. We'd say it's like, you know, I can hear the rain like marbles across the tin roof. Uh, and that's important. And a yarn has that quality about it. So it's about telling a story, about bringing people in. And it's about just letting them enjoy it um, and not getting straight to the punch. And I feel, for me, you know, I, I work at Bossport. We are about getting to the punch. You know, for kids' lives, sometimes everything's about quick and now. And everything's going to be done straight away. And I want people just to sit back and say, do you know what? I don't need to go where it's straight away. I'm willing to go with you on this little journey to find out what the message is at the other end. Yeah. Because that's what's nice about the book is the fact that you, you, it is personal. We do get to know you in the book. But as well as the, there is the research, educational research and mm. the <laughs> theory behind it. But it's just it's nice because it's, it's you in a page and um, we get to know kind of you. And then there's kind of the leadership skills sections. Mm. And then what's mm. lovely is there's little case studies as well. So mm. we kind of get examples from different people that you've worked with that show those qualities of the different chapters how did you how did you go about picking the people oh god so you know what I, I was just thinking about when I was well first of all people I know uh, you can always lean on other people you know when you're sort of writing a book or doing something and I was just looking for people that had a broad uh, range of experience so when I thought about uh, the people I thought to myself so I want people who have different experiences to me so my experiences I've taught in country New South Wales back in Australia I've taught in London and I've kind of my, my lived experience is sort of a bit in Sydney, a bit in countries of Wales and again London. So I was looking for people who offered some sort of counterpoints to me. And I felt that, say, for example, if we take Glenn, uh, who is in the back of the book, he's got sort of a really interesting sort of history. He's Maori. He's played basketball for the Sydney, in the Sydney 2000 Olympics. Uh, he's turned to school from 
uh, inadequate to outstanding in London, and now he's back in Australia. So he brings that sort of rich history of having worked in Croydon, uh, having worked in New Zealand, having been a professional sportsman, as well as on top of that, he brings sort of that um, that different lived experience about what a different culture brings and sort of hearing about how sort of Maori culture fits in, I think helps us see something from a different point of view. So I was looking for a range of experiences, both lived and professional, but also at the same time, I didn't want everything to be education because I think you can learn a lot from stepping outside of education. You know, when mm-hmm. I did mine, I did an MBA in business administration rather than something to do with education because I felt as we go bigger and as maths get bigger, we've got to learn a lot from the outside world, if you like to. Uh, by the outside world, I mean outside of education, because we can look outside, take the best of it. It doesn't mean we need to lose the essence of good education. So that's how I chose them. I look for people who are doing exceptional things in their field and would bring a rich uh, sort of tapestry uh, to what was going on. I think that was so sorry it's Catherine here I, I think that was so effective um what we've talked about so far because as you're reading the book you really do it's rich it really mm. feels so rich and um I just really enjoyed that element of it and uh interestingly enough I actually um I, I was listening to part of it um because I, I had it on in the car when I had a pdf of it as I was preparing mm. for the show so I, I really like the sort of vision of you driving into the desert <laughs> as I was driving into <laughs> into where I was going and you you really do get really engrossed in it and I don't know it was almost like um sort of seeing flashbacks of your life and your childhood and really getting to you getting to know you and uh you know I, I just as I've already said to you offline, I felt that I got to know me a bit better mm. as well through reading it. And um, kind of what I mean by that is there's a section in the book where you talk about uh, the leadership characteristics and you, you give your archetypes of the different leadership characteristics. Mm. And you talk about this archetypal teacher called Tracy and she uh, she's a religious studies teacher. And she um, is very into her technology. Mm. And I was just like, oh, my God, he's met me. (laughs) You know, because I'm an RS teacher and I'm I'm hopeless for like coming in with a brilliant new app I found or whatever. And I'm sure it drives people crazy. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I feel seen. It's, it really made me think. So I just wanted to thank you for that. Uh, isn't that great, though? There's a couple of things I pick up. First of all, Tracy's my sister's name. So I've deliberately <laughs> used my brother's and sister's names through the book because I want them to sort of, well, them to feel seen and a bit heard as well. But I, I love that comment about being seen because sometimes we feel like education is such a busy place we, and the children get seen. But sometimes do we see the teachers and the people who are putting everything out there to make it happen for these children? So, you know, I thought that was, I love that comment you gave me. So thank you very much. It really made me smile and made, made me very happy. But I, I think also I, what I wanted to pick up there is when you're sort of talking about you got to know me. And I felt there was kind of those themes through the book, which was this idea of saying, how do you lead if you don't know yourself? Mm. How do you expect other people to follow? And I sort of thought that about like knowing yourself, knowing your context, knowing the theory. And for me, that's, that was really important. I think it's taken me a long time, first of all, to kind of accept who I am um, and to go on that journey. Uh, you know, education is a very, or has been sort of a very middle-class, if you like, profession. And so, you know, I felt, I know when I was coming through that journey that I felt I had to behave middle-class in order to kind of be accepted in this 
in this sort of middle class world. And you know, it, it takes a long time to sort of know yourself and as you get older. And I felt for me, I wanted to share that because I wanted people to realize that it's about education. It's about how you teach. It's about how you lead. It's not about always about where you come from. And I think where you come from adds a richness to what's going on, but it doesn't define you. And so for me, I sort of always reminded of them. I think everybody's seen it, right? That Simon Sinek TED talk about your why when they talk about Apple. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, your, what's your why? Why are you here? You know, how as educators do we, do we show our why? And I always think my why is that idea of we're here. You know, I describe it in the book. You know, I want to change children's lives for the better by, by creating environments where learning is the norm. Because education for me is just about learning. Learning in and of itself is a beautiful thing and we should embrace it and love it. And I think sometimes we're too busy looking for other reasons. Just love the actual journey of learning for me. And I think that was really about it. So for me, my why is I want people to go on a journey, but I also want children to, you know, those opportunities I was talking about. So I think it's not about showing somebody a door, right? We talk about, oh, I I gave a child an opportunity. For me, it's a lot more than that. I don't think an opportunity is enough. I always say, you know, um, you, you put, oh, you've got to put the door there. You've got to open the door. You've got to lay the red carpet down. You might even need to nudge the child through the door, because mm-hmm. from my lived experience, there are lots of there are people I know who haven't, you know, been successful in education. And what do I mean by that? And I think this is really important. Is when I say a success, I want children who go on to read a rich and fulfilling life. And I think being well educated. And having lots of knowledge is part of that rich and fulfilling life. What I don't mean is everybody should go to uni. Most, I'm the only one in my family who's gone off to uni. Uh, you know, my nieces and nephews are working. And, you know, one of them is a stock and station agent. Basically, in Australia, that means basically you sell cattle and you sell mm-hmm. sheep stations. That's the actual farm. So, and that's important. I, I always say I want a good doctor as much as I want a good plumber. Yeah. And I don't mind which one you become, but as long as you lead a rich and fulfilling life. And, I find that, uh, you know, from my background, my lived experience tells me that not everybody who goes through education doesn't know how not to fail themselves. And I've got experience in my life where that's happened. And I've got friends who, you know, who kind of haven't gone on to read rich and fulfilling lives. And I think our job as educators is to, to, to make that happen and to go beyond showing kids, but actually, um, what I would say, sort of almost nudge them through, if you like, or push them if you need to. No, I, I, that came across across so clearly. You could really feel that you had a strong moral purpose, mm. and uh, all the way through the book, which is just made it so engaging. And and I think the 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 parts of the book where you really share your your story and the the times when you've applied for jobs and not got them, and <laughs> to, you know, it it's just so important because I think too many people show a finished product without any of the the working and that actually you know it's great if you've done it but if you're still on your way towards it you, you we need to feel reassured that actually what we're going through is normal and natural and actually valuable um so uh, yeah it was a really really powerful way of expressing that oh yeah like i i couldn't agree more sort of when you look at people, they do look like these finished products, like the, everything is just, their life has just been laid out before them. And I think that kind of what brought me to this conclusion was that when I spoke to people, their assumption was I, that I was kind of the average middle-class English white guy. Mm. And I just thought, 
And when you listen to me and you hear me talk, that's a fair assumption. But I thought, we, we need to stop judging books by their cover. And that was important to me. So part of me telling this and bringing people along was to say, do you know what? We come from all sorts of different backgrounds and different experiences. And I want people to know that that's it. That's okay. That's good. And that brings a rich tapestry as I keep talking about. And that's really important to me. But also like you're seeing there that, um, oh no, I've lost my train of thought there for a second, which was just that idea of like, uh, oh yeah, the, the, I've learned more from my failures than I have from mm-hmm. my successes. You know, you can imagine being in a school for a year thinking you're going to go for like a, a an SLT job and not getting an interview. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. that's, you know, that's, that's painful. That yeah. hurts. I know. I, <laughs> I, I, I have experienced that <laughs> phenomenon. <laughs> yeah, but that, you want to go home and all you want to do is cry, right? You just, you just feel like yeah. absolutely destroyed uh, inside and you kind of think, why am I here? What am I doing? They hate me. You know, what am I getting wrong? All of those feelings are kind of just absolutely running inside you like there's no tomorrow. I think when people, if someone's to see me talk at an event somewhere, they're like, oh, his life's just been fine. It's absolutely perfect. You know, he's never been through that. Do you know what? I'm probably mm. worse. So just like, yeah, hopefully people can empathize and, you know, uh, see that, the, like you said, it, it's normal. It's normal to fail. It's good. I think that was what was really nice is that um, because we say that to the students, that if you you get the better behavior when you kind of let the students know that you're human and you're not this Mm. kind of perfect pedestal of kind of a teacher that has this perfect little life and bubble that actually we know that we're human and and we do do things wrong and and some we're not perfect all the time. And it was kind of it was it was nice to know that like leadership aren't always the the perfect schools aren't always perfect. And (laughs) a a strong theme was kind of recognizing those mistakes and being able to to adjust to them quite quickly and being reflective as a really important tool oh look I couldn't agree more so it's you know what would I say you need your moment to wallow right you don't have to you have to let yourself kind of you know accept that and you know feel that but yeah it's about that resilience isn't it it seems to be an underused or an overused word these days but it's the resilience to get back up and go again and we want it in our children but we've got to look for it in ourselves as well and as a leader yeah you're going to get knocks. People are going to criticize you. People are going to say to you, no matter what, you can't please all the people all the time. Everyone will be quick to tell you what you're getting wrong. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. It's about that learning from that and getting up and going again. I think um, uh, the, the number of times children have said to me, I, I remember a young man, I was teaching a class once, I did teaching maths, and I made some off the cuff joke about something. And all he did was after the class goes, sir, I. I didn't appreciate your joke today. I don't think it was appropriate. And I just went, do you know what? You're absolutely right. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have made that joke. And I just thought, was that like how beautiful that that student was willing, able to take that time out to think about it. He was in year 10 and he was taking on, I think I was the principal at that point, right? And he had the confidence to, not to do it in front of the class, not to do anything, but just to say, sir, you made a joke. I didn't feel that was appropriate today. I think it sort of made light of uh, uh, some people who are neurodivergent. It wasn't on purpose. And he just, but he had that conversation very calmly, very quietly. And I just went, you know what? I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I'll apologize to the class next time. And I thought, I love that, 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 that confidence and that ability to sort of accept your mistakes. Hmm. Now that's, that's a really, really um, sort of good story there, because I think, you know, I mean, 
we, we do need to to model a bit of humility and um, that kind of thing in front of students, don't we, to really show, show them that hmm. life well lived is is to do with the rough and the smooth and, and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it, it is. Everything's about everything's about that balance. Um, you know, and when I think about the kids and, and again, sort of where I've worked, I was thinking about like we talked about knowing myself, but then I think about where are you working? Know your context. So you spoke about all the different people we bring into the book, but uh, and why I brought them in. But I think, and you see this from a couple of places. So Stephen Hall's one of the people I speak to, and he sort of turned a number of schools from sort of inadequate to good, I think three in his lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I think what, you know, what, he, what was the biggest learning I took from him was, you know, your context does make a difference. And I don't, we're all out there. And I think sometimes we're sort of too busy saying, oh, it's context, it's context, it's context. And I think let's not overuse this. For me, look, I'm a mathematician. I wouldn't expect, I'd expect my maths curriculum to be nigh on the same in, in Buck, in Sydney, uh, in London, uh, you know, and, and even in Scotland. But when I think about, you know, what nuances they might have, it's, it, I think about that when I think about what are the families I'm dealing with? How might this community respond differently to how we go about behavior management? How might this community respond differently to sort of how well do they deal with authority? How well do they deal with, you know, all of those other things? So I think when I think about, when I think about context, I think about more about how did, how might the community respond? What is the community looking for? Because I've never yet met a community that doesn't want the best for their children. You know, when people say, oh, this, you know, maybe it's the white working class community, or maybe it's this, or maybe it's that. It's like, I've never met anybody that doesn't want the absolute best for their children. It might be slightly different to what you want for their child, but I think everybody wants the best for their child. And I think that's the start of it. And then we think, right, okay, how do we connect with this community? Even if I'm not from it, how do I connect with it? Because I'm going to be educating your children. I need to understand where you're coming from. Otherwise, we're going to clash. Uh, and that's going to make life really hard. And their children and the children you're looking after are not going to necessarily make the progress they can. So I was thinking about the next thing from the why is really knowing your context, know the community you're serving, and knowing how to get the best out of that community and how you can serve them uh, mm. well. That comes across really clear at the start of the book with kind of you really must and 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 your context and your community doesn't like just decipher kind of where your students can get to because some people will be like oh they're just low ability boys or they're just oh they're they're from that kind of criteria so they're not going to make it but it's it's very much having those aspirations and Mm. um that target aim that they are all going to achieve to this level and giving them the stepping stones to get there but it's like you said there's that very very clear why and kind of that real mission kind of focus and I love the fact that your your chapter two I think you had your mission in uh, bold repeatedly (laughs) throughout it just to kind of make sure that we were aware that you were very much mission uh (laughs) led but it is it's like it's kind of making it really obvious like and it's it's thinking as a leader uh, that you have to have that in mind all the time and have that focus and it, I think that's what deciphers are good to a, a, a shall I say be diplomatic a less good leader <laughs> is that you're having that deciphered down the school everybody in the school is on the same page and you all have that same mission and drive to have those aspirational goals for your students 
Oh, God, you know, and it's one of the hardest things, isn't it? You know, we do, we do, I talk about it in chapter two, like it's so easy to get knocked off course or be distracted, right? I think you joked about like, uh, get distracted by the latest technology. I love technology as well. <laughs> uh, and I can get distracted. But it's, it's how do you keep yourself focused? But also, you know, when I think about, so I worked for, I've worked for some great leaders and the thing they did well was translate that vision. So how does that mission and vision translate into sort of tangible things that people can grab a hold of? And I think you're absolutely right. And you saw, um, you know, Nick, who started up my uh, Mossbourne Victoria Park, talks about how do you start a vision from scratch when there's nothing there? And when I think about that, I think about, you know, the Steve Jobs of the world, you know, who went, you know, you're just buying into somebody's words, just their vision. And I think the person who does that, you know, Nick, uh, who we talk about in that chapter, was the first principal of Mossbourne Victoria Park, or a Steve Jobs, that's different to a, to a Tim Cook. And when I came along, I had to make something sustainable. So when you're sharing that mission about sustainability, it takes you on a very different path. And I think at the point that at that point, it's all about how you're going to be around in 100 years. So, yeah, sharing that mission with everybody, but also being willing to go on a I like it to go on a 100 year journey. Um, if you came to my school uh, or not mine, I should say, you know, Rebecca, who runs my uh, uh, Mossbourne Community Academy. You'll see three photos in the front office, and then you, which is sort of the Sir Michael's, the founding principal, the current principal, and our sponsor, Supply Bomb. And when you walk into the corridor, there's just a lowly picture of me in the corridor uh, by myself. And people are like, "Why are you in the corridor all by yourself?" I said, "Because I'm by myself now, but in a hundred years, I'm going to be in a corridor full of people who've led this school, and this will be the history of the school that you walk past as you walk down that corridor." And that's the kind of Yes, there's this mission aligned and it's all about this mission, but what are you doing to help show the children and show everybody in that school what that looks like tangibly and, and to visualize that and to visualize your vision? I think that's critical, right? How do you turn that mission into tangible and share that with people in a way they can feel it and take it on and own it for themselves? I think that's so important. Um, I, I, my school, we've just had our 75th anniversary last year and we have exactly as you've described a corridor with uh, whole, you know, old head teachers and um, big group photos of, you know, the whole school out on the field <laughs> and what have you. And you do, you stop and the kids, are, they do stand next to, they have a good look, they're trying to pick out older brothers and the the bleachers and all the rest of it and you know it's a very powerful thing to feel that you belong to something that's bigger than yourself and uh that that's i think very powerful um in the book yeah and i think you know i think um if i was sort of being negative i feel like sometimes we lose that in education that you're part of this bigger picture and we get a bit sort of absorbed sometimes in the now and i think we've got a good leaderships about balancing the now with the future and with a sort of long-term future while also creating a legacy that people feel belong to something. Yeah, I think that's a very delicate balance to try and strike there. There's a section where people um, try to put you off when you look to get in your job. They were like, <laughs> why on earth would you do that? And I, 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 well, I get that generally from members of the public when you're like, I'm a teacher. They're like, oh gosh, that's that's a hard job. But also like when I'm like, I want to get into leadership um, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, why would you want that workload? But I think there's something about it, isn't it? So what made you kind of go not listen to the, all the people you asked You went, <laughs> don't do it and, uh, and do it in such a spectacular way as well. 
<laughs> thank you very much for saying I've done it in a spectacular way. Uh, I, when I first did this journey, I just said to people, judge me in 10 years, right? Don't, don't come back to me in the space of 10 years. Judge me in 10 years. Because you're right. You know, uh, I was standing on the shoulders of giants. If it went well, um, everyone would have said it's because my predecessor did a great job. And if it went um, up the pan, shall we say, it was definitely going to be my fault. But I kind of, I'm a, I'm a bit of a glutton for punishment. Um, I like a challenge. Uh, you know, I'm like a bull. If you put a red rag in front of me, I will just run at it because that's who I am. But I, do you know what? It's, I, that suited me well. I don't want to necessarily be the hero. That's not who I want to be. And I think there's too many people in education who want to be the hero head. They want to be the person who turns around the department. They want to be the person who takes it from 10% to 50%. There's nothing wrong with that. And we need those people who are willing to go into those schools and into those departments. But for me, it was about, I've just always loved legacy. And I've loved, you know, I love traditions. I've come from being a Republican in Australia to a monarchist because I've just started loving the tradition of the monarchy. And I, that's the wrong way around. I know that's completely the wrong way around, but I just love the traditions. I just love these old school traditions. And I just thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if, if I could create that? Wouldn't it be great if I could take this brand new thing and create these traditions? Wouldn't it be great if I could take something on that nobody wants, right? And I like a bit of a lost cause. So maybe it was just a bit of a lost cause. And that was it. I just wanted to say... I want to do this. I want to take it on. I know it's an extremely hard challenge. I know there's only one way, which is almost failure. And as you said, my friend said that to me. And one of my friends just kept saying it wasn't even my result uh, until sort of five years. So for me, I was just willing to go on that longer journey. And I think it was about, I just love the school and I love the children. And when I found Mossbourne, I found home. And that's a really powerful thing as a teacher, when you just find home. You think, this, this is where I want to work. I'd never been in a school longer than three years before that. Mm. And then I arrived at Mossbourne and I'm there 15 years later, right? And that is an amazing journey to go on, to just find home and to feel like you want to get up and go there every day. Uh, I'm not saying I haven't had bad days in the days when I haven't, like, there's people I wanted to, um, I won't say kill, but there's people <laughs> I still would say, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have wanted them to walk in front of me <laughs> any minute now. Uh, but you know, when you find somewhere you love and find something you love and enjoy doing, and for me, that's like teaching and being at a school that I care about and I love the kids and I love the sort of diversity of, of I just love it, of Hackney. And Hackney is mm. a really special place as well. It just feels like a borough that's got a real soul. And for me, like, why would I not want to? Why would I not want to do that? Why would I not want to sort of continue to give these children something amazing? So it's almost for me, I didn't quite understand why people were telling me not to do it. I just thought it was the right thing to do. And I'm just going to go, Tom, cover your ears. But we chatted before about kind of like workload and that actually, because I'm doing my master's and I have to log six hours a week off the job and everything. When he thinks I'm absolutely balmy doing all this extra work, but I absolutely mm. love it. I live and breathe education and I am just slightly yeah. addicted to it. But it's like, it is, if you want to put the effort and you want to put yeah. the hours in and you're enjoying it, it is okay to do, as long as you're not burning yourself out, it's having that balance. But I think there is a place in education for people who do want to give it everything and and spend their weekends reading your lovely book. <laughs> yeah, look, look. And yeah, we well, spoke about that, didn't we? And I said, I remember I, I did a future leaders talk 
um, not long after I'd been, and I just said, if I was if I was a musician, would you tell me to put my guitar down? If I was a football player, would you tell me to stop kicking a football? And it's like, I want to teach. I want to read about teaching. I want to, I write the timetable on the weekend. I love it. I love data. I love that. If I'm enjoying it and no one's forcing me to do it, then stop telling me not to do it. As far as I'm concerned, I want to do it. I'm enjoying it. I'm loving it. I want to keep going. And that's what I want to do. And that's my choice. But I think that's very different to if somebody's kind of imposing that on you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the difficult thing here is like, I don't call it work-life balance. I sort of think about it, and it's in this book called Radical Candor. I can't remember, uh, somebody, Scott. Yeah. yeah. And she talks about um, fitting work into your life, right? And for me, kind of work is my life. And I'm not saying you have to do that to be a leader. Um, all my other leaders have got families. They're family-orientated. Uh, they, uh, you know, they go and look after them. One of my leaders basically runs a school, and you know, getting a hold of her in the holidays is almost impossible. So... You can do this in all sorts of different ways. You've got to find something that works for you, works for your family, and works for how you fit work into your life. And I think that's the message. How does work fit into your life? And finding something that works for you, rather than dictating a fixed number of hours. It's it's so interesting. And in terms of, uh, you know, one of the things that comes through in the book as well is that you you are clear that what needs to be done and is right doesn't need to necessarily be popular um and i wonder if you could just unpack that a little bit for us because that's that's quite a courageous kind of um statement do you know what i think um can i i'll unpack it by telling you a story this didn't make the final book uh, for reasons that i go into another day but uh, somebody by the name of dame joan McVitie and uh, she ran a school up in White Hart Lane. And when she took over the school, I think it was about 3%, um, including English and maths. And she took it from that to an outstanding school, right? Uh, above national average. And that's a big piece of work. And when she when she was there, I better get in trouble for all this, but um, she went in and they were teaching science in Turkish. Mm. Now, these kids are going to sit the, the exam in English, right? Let, well, let's actually understand this. So they're learning technical science words in Turkish, and then they have to go and sit the exam in English. Now, when this was done, and this is, you can go and look at this in, online, see it in the papers, that it was being lauded as, as this amazing thing. Uh, and her, pre, her predecessor did it in the school. It was this idea, we're doing it in Turkish, it's up in Harangay, so you know, mass, it's, a, it's a strong Turkish community. I know I lived on green lanes up there myself for a long time. And, and it was sort of this really positive thing. So I was in, I think, in the, in the mirror. It might have even been the sun. It might have even made the test about this amazing thing the school's doing as a model for the world. And when she went in, she saw that and went, that's not going to lead to those kids passing. It might help them feel like they belong. They're not going to pass science. There's no way you can learn technical science words in Turkish, have a whole class in Turkish, and then go sit and examine English. That's just not going to work. And I just, when I was listening to her tell me this story, and she went... I stopped it. And she got hauled into the, like, the local authority office. She got, uh, you know, then you can see the newspaper articles about her making this change. And I just thought, oh, God, I thought I'd done some courageous things, but I've never had been called into the, lo- the local authority or had to go, you know, one-to-one with somebody who's definitely far, far my senior. And what, what, what courage she had to sort of say, Despite the newspapers, despite everybody saying this is an exciting thing and this is something we should look at up and down the country, she went and went, 
I know this is wrong. And her, her mechanism was, would I send my daughters here? And mm. I thought that was powerful in the end. She just said, no, I wouldn't put my daughter in that class. Therefore, I'm going to stop it. And she stopped it. So that to me is what, for me, it's that mechanism, isn't it? Like what she's saying there is, would you put your child in this school? Would you put your child in that class? And for me, I think, would I put my niece or nephew? I don't have children, but it's the same thing. If you wouldn't send your child there or you wouldn't allow your child to go there, why is it okay for someone else's child? So when I say doing what's right, not what's popular, that's what I'm talking about. Would you, if you had a child, have them be in your school, in that classroom, receiving that lesson? Because if the answer is not yes, then you need to do something about it. And now. And and I think that's that's really, that comes across so strongly. And what uh, what I really um, like about part of how you frame that in the book is that you talk about um, sort of academization and how so many people that you have observed have wanted to do something different and the next big thing and uh you know classes with like only three walls and (laughs) and things like that and try I I just I'm somebody that I I get distracted sometimes I'm sitting up here doing my mock marking and my you know my husband and my kid are playing something downstairs on the computer and I've got to put earplugs in because I can't (laughs) concentrate that would drive me absolutely crazy and and I think you know what what comes across so strongly is that you've got to have bottom line of structure which is Mm. really clear and which is really evidence informed and which kind of will be a guiding principle and then you know you've got to be able to to sort the wheat from the chaff a bit you know what is going to actually be something that will help and have fidelity to our mission and what is actually just going to get a few headlines and, and things like that and I think you know, reading the book, I'm left in no doubt that you've got a really clear idea about what kinds of, how you're going to do that sorting. Um, you know, do you want to just talk a little bit yeah, about so, that process? So I think, um, and let's think about this in a couple of different ways. So I'd love to come back to people data systems, which is my way of thinking about things as a broad picture in a second. But I think, do you know what? I've been a math teacher now for, without giving my, away my age, you know, I finished university and I've got a degree in math teaching, that a Bachelor of Education in math teaching. That's four years learning how to teach math. So I don't know why I did that at the beginning. And you'll have to read the book about how that actually happened. Uh, but you know, so first things first, right? In all that time, maths hasn't changed. Mm. I still teach maths and I can still teach maths with a board marker. The only thing that's changed is I now have to use like a a board marker and I'm not allowed to use chalk anymore. Nobody will give me a chalkboard. I'd rather mm-hmm. a chalkboard if I get away with it, but you know, that's showing my age. I've got a lot of gray hair. So, that's what so first thing is, we're too busy to jump on something. So first things first, you know, don't jump on the latest initiative and actually stop and say, what will my children get out of this change? What will be the learning? What will be the extra the children will get? Because if you can't answer the extra, then don't do it. Right. If you can't answer what the children are going to get, and I mean a tangible, they will learn more, they'll learn quicker, they will get a better job or whatever it is, and you can't answer that in a tangible way, then don't do it. And my second thing is like, what what are you going to trade off? I, I got this. Dylan Williams spoke about this today. I got to go to a conference with him, or he was where he was speaking, and he just said, you know, I'm going to add. If you're going to add something in, 
and ask mm -hmm. teachers to do something, what are you going to take away? Because what he said was, um, ultimately, if you don't take something away, what you're saying to teachers is, you, <laughs> you weren't working at capacity already. Now, <laughs> we're all teachers, right? Have you ever met a teacher who's not working at capacity? No. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's so you've got to think about those two things right so mm -hmm. what what are the children going to get out of it and what am i going to do differently where can i try and save some time and that's a really hard thing to do and especially in leadership you have to think about that very carefully but i think put the children front and center and i think uh, i was doing this on something before i remember a, a teacher of mine and we started, we were, trying to get, we were making phone calls to every single parent before parents' evening. And, you know, we were getting up to, well, we have got 100% before. And we normally hit around about 96, 97% attendance of parents' evening. And we phone them. And any parent who hasn't, didn't turn up last time, receives at least three phone calls beforehand and reminders about turning up this year. Uh, all of the things we were a bit insane about parents' evening because we want our parents to be engaged. Mm -hmm. And a parent just said, one of my, one of my teachers said, I, Peter, I can't do this. I can't do it. And I just said, look, do you think it's important to turn up? Yes. He said, look, I know we're doing the right thing. And I said, well, I tell you what, find me anything you want to take off. And I just say to my staff, if there's anything you think we shouldn't be doing, please tell me. I want to know. Like, I've got five main objectives this year. One of them is to remove useless work. Yeah. Like, that's one of my sort of themes that I want to do. How can I stop double working? What can I do to remove double work? I've got that with my central service team. I've shared that with all my principals. I've asked them to take, make the same challenge. And we've got to do that all the time. So I've kind of gone off track there, as I do in my yarns. Yeah. As, you started to, as you started to understand, I get a bit lost in where I'm going. I feel sorry for my staff sometimes. I think sort of underway. I'm trying to figure out where he's going. But ultimately, it's this. If you're going to add something, what are you going to take away? Or how are you going to save people time? And what's the benefit to children? Two simple questions. If you can't answer both of those, go back. Go back to the drawing board and try again. I think for me, that was one of the key points in teaching is where I learned that it's like, how does it benefit the kids? Why am I mm. marking this? If it doesn't benefit the kids, I shouldn't be doing it. It's not a tick box exercise. And um, I'm not giving too much away, but you have little elephants in your book, oh. uh, which are your kind of little kind of Shasha rants? <laughs> no. Little, uh, uh, your first one, um, you discuss Ofsted and the pro kind of the pros and cons about Ofsted. Mm. And I think that's what a lot of leaders go wrong is they try and create schools to do well in Ofsted as opposed to create, it, making it about the children. Oh, do you know what? Maybe I've been in a luxurious position. So I've got to say, so I, I'm going to, I'll go into it. So um, first things first, right? So I elephants in the room are really about so the spoiler alert turn off for a little bit if you don't want to hear but yeah elephants are all those elephants we don't want to talk about right they're everything that it's the big elephant in the room that nobody's talking about and I think for me when I think about Ofsted I think about when I think about elephant room I think about things like radical candor how many times you've been in a room and somebody's saying oh that teacher's not doing what they're meant to do they're not doing what they're meant to do they're not doing that and nobody's I just say who told the teacher Who's told the person so they have a chance to change it? So we can think about, you know, radical candor. Um, I think in education, we don't often talk openly about things. We're kind of like skirt around it or nudge at it or say something. Like, like what was it? One of my favorite when you were saying that about marking. I cannot figure it out. People who write verbal feedback in the book. <laughs> is yeah. that the most insane thing you've ever heard of? I literally am writing in the book to tell you I spoke to the child. 
Who's that yeah. for? I, I, I find that the most insane thing I've ever heard of. I remember when I first seen that, I said, why are you doing that? Like, what, on what planet do you think that's a good thing? Because I can't see it, right? Uh, I'm not saying I love marketing and I'm a fan of marketing. We, I won't go into the marketing debate. But I don't see a point in writing verbal feedback. And if the student's not reading it, don't do anything about it. So, yeah, those elephants in the room. So, for me, when I come to Offset, I'm going to sort of, without giving away the book, I'm going to come up and say three things, right? I think we need a regulator. There's mm-hmm. no doubt in my mind we need one. And I think public bodies have a regulator, whether that be Ofcom for what we watch on TV or now going to look at the internet. I think they're making some good moves there. And or the police have a regulator or, you know, the NHS have a regulator. We're, we're dealing with public money and we're dealing with people. We need to have a regulator that makes sure that nobody's um, doing what they shouldn't do, right? There's nothing wrong with that. A regulator is an important part of public life for me. And, but I think, I think the other way, you know, uh, I think Offset have lost their way though. And I was listening to a thing, uh, no, I read something about from Leone from a Confederation of Schools Trust. And in her emails, she was saying like, Offset want to be about school improvement. What other regulator wants to do improvement of the system? They're there to say, you do or don't meet the standard. And this is what you, this is where you are meeting and this way you're not. It's a very simple process. And I think that we're getting caught up in all sorts of other things. All I want the regulator to do is say, is this acceptable in, in the United Kingdom or in England as it is for us? Is this acceptable? What is the minimum standard we all agree on? And that's what the regulator's job is. They're there to say, do you meet the minimum standard? And when I think about that, my third point is, what is the point of outstanding? Yeah. All it's like, what is this point, right? And I run outstanding schools. And I, like, but the point is, like, so can you imagine I've taken over from Sir Michael? We didn't have an Ofsted for 10 years. Mm. And they come in for the first day. And then I'm not sure what their judgment is. I don't know what they're thinking. They refuse to tell you the direction of travel. They're silent on everything. Can you imagine the pressure that I was feeling to think if this school now gets a good for the first time in its life as, as an outstanding school, I'm wondering whether I'm going to have my job tomorrow morning. Like, and you read all the stuff I've done and I, yet that, I, was still, I still had that panic and worry and fear and didn't sleep. Yeah. Like, is that right? You know, we've all seen the worst outcomes of that this year, right? Uh, you know, yeah. and Ruth, it goes out to Ruth and her family and everybody else in that community, but she's not the first. And I think all outstanding seems to do is cause heartache and pain. And if you get it, you know, and then we put banners up everywhere saying we're this and we're that. And I'm like, really? We like a good comment, but I just think we need to really stop and think about our regulators' purpose, what we wanted to do, and stop getting outside their lane. Just keep it simple. And ultimately, why is it up? To, why is it just, why is it changing every time there's a new regulator? And why is the regulator defining our system? Anyway, that's my, uh, that's me. I'm going to get off my horse. I should say off my high horse. I'm going to jump off my elephant now. Uh, I dangled the carrot and you did well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I'm just going to say right now, like, like you know, uh, look, guess what the other elephants are? Uh, you know, go on. And there are a lot of them in the book. And hopefully they make some sense to you. And I, um, they're everything from rants to kind of deep 
uh, personal stories uh, from me. So, you know, I hope you enjoy them uh, and you understand sort of where I'm coming from. And in a similar kind of sense, you, you have a bit where you talk about kind of observations and kind of quality assurance of teachers and how mm. to make sure that you're aware of the teaching that's going on in your school. Yeah. So, you know, I talk about that idea. And for me, I, you know, so I've got this, uh, I did, I created progress teaching with this simple idea of, um, you know, I wanted to have something that made the, basically a program that was focused on teaching and learning. So I'll, I'll explain how I got there was that I just said, when I took over from Sir Michael, I said, right, so why have we got these three high pressure observations per year? Why is that going on? Like, what is that purpose? I can't see a purpose. You know, you've got to go through threshold. You've got to get two outstanding judgments. You've got all these things in your list. I felt like, I just feel like, what is the purpose of these one-off observations? They're not serving any purpose. There's something that's just been agreed with the unions. It sort of, it doesn't actually drive the quality of teaching and learning up. And I said, like, I think I say it in my book where ultimately I used to practice for them. You know, I'm not an idiot. If, if my pay is going to be dependent upon how well I do in this one hour, who wouldn't practice that in advance? Yeah, I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying that makes me a good human being. But if you're going to put enough on the line, people will behave in strange ways. Yeah. And I yeah. think for me, when we think about uh, improving the quality of teaching and learning, it's incremental. Do you know what? We know that works for kids, right? We, we, we look at something, we say how well they've done, and then we give them some, we give them some feedback, they improve it, and we go through the cycle. So why do we think we've got to switch at the age of 18 or when we go into work? that changes that, like we're going to do something else. So I think when I'm thinking about improving the quality of teaching and learning, I'm thinking it's drop-ins, they should be unannounced, they should be low stakes. If you have a bad day, have a better day tomorrow, that's fine. If you have a good day, let's come back again tomorrow. Let's just make it fluid, right? And the more fluid you make it, the more it's okay to make mistakes, then the more likely it is to become, is to become developmental. And that's the important part for me. I say to my teachers, like, if you have eight good lessons and two bad, then you know, you're doing well. That's fine. You know, if you have eight amazing lessons and two okay lessons, then you're a really great teacher. You're top of you know, everyone has a bad day. I you know, I've had lots of bad days when I'm teaching. And that's kind of important to understand that it's okay to have a bad day. And we're gonna model that and move it forward. But the way I think about that then was if I'm gonna have this sort of little and often approach, then I wanted to have a system that would allow me to uh, basically have everyone see the same thing. So I came up with this idea of progress teaching, whose sole purpose is to sort of improve the quality of teaching and learning, uh, and therefore improve student outcomes. Because we know teaching and learning is where it's at. Change the quality of teaching, you change student outcomes. It's a really simple equation. And what I wanted to do with that was to capture all of those little bits of information, because that's how you can do it. So I always say, what's, how, how will is somebody doing when they're setting their homework how well is somebody explaining how well is so we break it down now into kind of nine different pieces if you look at rosenstein mm -hmm. i think it's 10 pieces in the rosenstein so are we giving people feedback on these component parts of their lesson and you know well <laughs> you could say you like it or don't like it but as you go in and look at somebody you want to say right in this element you know let's say we're talking about exposition is this good exposition is this exposition in development or is this exposition a model of good practice that I'm seeing today? And we all go in when we look at something, we think about those three sort of levels, don't we? Yeah, this is good. Oh, I don't want to use good because that's off steady and I don't like that. Mm -hmm. But this is like, this is the expected standard, right? You are delivering and we're happy with that. You're doing a really good job. 
oh, that, oh God, what you're doing now, I'd really like to share that with other people. Like, it might be an expert or it's highly effective. Or that's an area which you're still developing. I can see that. And so we sort of, I like to look at it in that sense. And so when I think about teaching and learning is, is every time we drop in and have a look at somebody, we capture that. We let them know where it is on that sort of, if you like, uh, as those three different places. And then we aggregate all of that information up from every single drop in. And that allows me as a, as a, as a member of the sort of like uh, of the trust to see what's happening in maths in year five in one of my classrooms. And I can see that information. But guess what? So can the teacher. Mm -hmm. So everybody sees the same thing and everybody's having a conversation about the same information. And I think for me, that's the critical thing. Senior leaders are running around and they're making, they're making informed decisions all the time about what they're looking about. I want to not just make that informed decision, but I want to share that information with the teacher. I want to tell them what I'm thinking about. And I want leaders to be open and honest about what they're seeing and share that with the teacher. So the teacher has a chance to, to either shine or to improve or do something. Let's, let's be open and transparent and come back to that idea of, Let's be honest with each other. Let's just have a radical conversation. Mm. We, we, we avoid was... that in teaching so often. Yeah. So I thought it was so powerful. There was one sentence that really sort of jumped out at me. But after you've talked through all of the things you've just described, and uh, it was like, if it should never be a surprise to the teacher if there is oh. an issue, and and then then you say something like. If if teachers if teachers are surprised by their sort of appraisal or whatever it is, then you don't have a teacher problem. You've got a leadership problem. Oh look, and I tell you, um, the number of times, and I've got some great leaders, I've got some amazing teachers, but the number of times I've sat in a room and somebody has complained about a teacher, or mm. said they want to put them on a support plan, and I've said, right, so let's just open up. We've got all their observations. So let's read what you've said to the teacher. And you find out the leader hasn't had an honest conversation. They haven't told the teacher. Mm -hmm. Like, well, so sorry, I can have a conversation. I can do a support plan, but it's not going to be for the teacher. Would you like to go away and rethink <laughs> about this? But, you know, because I think sometimes we're too quick as leaders to blame the teacher. We're too quick. And I think, so why are we not reflecting on our own leadership first? and what we're doing before we blame somebody else you know what did i do to help you get better what could we do differently what's that sort of adage i can change my behavior i can't change someone else's behavior but what i can do is change how i react to it mm -hmm. and that's all i can do so as a leader what can you do differently I might I be controversial there. I feel like I'm being controversial. <laughs> no, I, no I, I just, I, it's one of my personal bugbears where people find themselves facing up to a support plan and they're shocked. And I just think, you know, if we had a little bit more radical candor earlier on, developmentally, kindly, of course, mm. but, yeah. you know, I mean, then people perhaps wouldn't end up in the kind of, stress cul-de-sacs that they end oh, up in and it's horrible isn't it mm -hmm. yeah but linking back to what Catherine said earlier I really like the the character and the qualities and then you kind of gave a little example of each of them you gave mm. a little bit about their good qualities and their bad qualities and their ugly qualities <laughs> but also uh the kind of 
the methods that would be useful to kind of dealing with that teacher so for, for me I was like I, I kind of did that the hard way I did it kind of the way that the school wanted and mm. the teacher did not react well to, to that method mm. and I was like actually I'd have to change and, and do little little changes and lots of positive praise and, and change them around that way and it's like actually had I read this first I'd have clocked <laughs> exactly who it was and exactly what I needed to do <laughs> And there's also that, um, uh, why do I think, what is it, I think everybody else is an idiot? Why is everybody else an idiot? There's a book called that. And it talks about the different colours as well. So you can do, you know, this idea of who people are. So yeah, like, we're going to stop thinking, or when we, like you said, we like, look at that person, how might they respond? What might work for them? And as a leader, how can I tune into that? Um, and I think that's critical. That's a critical thing there, isn't it, right? So, as a leader, you can change your behavior. And you're right. Sometimes there's just this blanket way of doing something which doesn't really get the best out of people. And it's not to say sometimes I, I need things to be done a certain way. Like if I was talking about child protection, it needs to be done a certain way and you're going to do it this way. Um, that's all there is to it. But, you know, God, unless it's something that has to be done a certain way, there's like, you know, you've got to find the best way to get the best out of people. Uh, and I learned that very early on and realizing you can, you know, you create an environment where people can thrive. And that's why I talk about the mission being about the environment, not about the outcomes. If you're enjoying our chat, just a reminder that your book is from Bloomsbury Education and it's out on the 7th of December and people can pre-order it and get 35% off with the code HUGHES35. So if you've joined us a little bit later, I highly recommend this one. Um, my One of my favourite lines was, otherwise you could easily have become the David Moyes of education. So uh, <laughs> to prevent that happening to you, this is the book. <laughs> the great thing about the book there's lots of little comedy bits it's not like a serious like head elite this is what you've got to do you've got to, you've got to have your stern face on and do all this there's it's just a really lovely book to read and it makes you giggle and it really gets it's there's so much personal side to it yeah but then there's also just... lots of facts and data as well I, you know i'm a mathematician right so i think um you know i i sort of come back to this like people data systems so i think about three levels right people data systems so you need people. Nothing happens without people, right? And people, like I said, are what grows a trust. You know, if you think about, would you end up with a Makeda, lover or hater? You know, Catherine Verbal Singh and, you know, people knowing what she's about and doing that job. That's great. So people kick you off. And, but I think they only get you so far by themselves. And then I think about what information could you give them? So a second ago, we spoke about like progress teaching. We spoke about feeding them full of that information about whether that be the classroom teacher, what are you good at, what do you need to improve on, be 100% clear in black and white so they know and they can take ownership of that, or whether you're a middle leader getting that data in front of you or behavior data, or like, I love this, right? In my school, we read through all the actions that action steps people have got, and that defines our CPD. What a radical idea. <laughs> like actually figure out what people need to know and then designing your CPD program around it. It's not saying really oh, long term. It's genius. <laughs> it's a genius idea. Like, oh, I'm going to figure out. And, and the other thing is, why not look at what other people are good at and use them to do that CPD? I know, I know, I know I'm being radical here, but we don't have data in school. We're too busy like analyzing like year nine maths pupil premium gap in set four. Really? Mm -hmm. Is that really going to move the dial? Or so think about what that data is. And for me, if I'm thinking about teaching and learning, I want to know what are my teachers good at? What do they need to improve on? 
how can I help them get there? So when I talk about data, I like the right data in front of the right people and make sure everyone's got the same data. I want the teacher, my middle leader, my SLT, me to have exactly the same data at, at different levels, of course. Obviously, I don't want to be reading everybody's observation across sort of a thousand sort of across over sort of 500 teachers. So what's the data? What's the information that you want in front of people? And really think about that. And then how are you going to collect that without it um, overloading people? So we come back to that same idea. And then once you've got those two things, what are your systems? How do you free up people's cognitive load? Do you like when you're thinking about reading, right? A child needs to be able to decode in order to read, and then they can see the themes in a book. If I want a child to be able to do fractions, I, they need to multiply. Otherwise, they get caught up on repeated addition. So what systems are in place in your school to free up your leaders and your teachers' cognitive load? Mm -hmm. And I, I bring this down to you, right? So think about this. During COVID, how tired were you? Like, I was worn out. I was absolutely, I'm like, why am I so tired? In some cases, no children in the building. Why am I so tired? It was because everything was different every day. And therefore, nothing was automated. And you were just draining your brain with everything you needed to do. So what are those routines and rituals and systems you've got in, in place in your school that don't overload teachers and overdo their workload? Let's think about that and get off plate. But what are they? And I think about that too, because when you've got people and you've got informed data and you've got strong systems in place, like, for example, we have a, you know, kids line up in the morning and everyone shows their planner in the air. That's so every form tutor doesn't have to check the planners when they go into class. And as a, as a head of year, you can see if before, all the kids have got their, their planners that day. Any child who doesn't automatically comes to the front. Planners solved. Everyone's got their planners and equipment for the day. Takes us 30 seconds to do something. Mm -hmm. Isn't that a simple system, right? So what are your simple systems that make things work and make it better? Because when you've got those in play, I always think that what that allows you to do is to then, if, if you do need a change of personnel, and I know I said some interesting things about sort of retention in the book, but... If you do, then the system will hold the school going while that person gets up to speed. And great systems allow good people to be amazing. That's what they do. Otherwise, you're just caught up in basically running around the, the rabbit, the sort of um, the mouse wheel. Yeah. So to people, they, the systems is how I like to think about it. It was, it was quite interesting reading the bit on teacher retention because um, I'm moving on to my finance module next. So I'm like, oh, I've understood it. I'm ahead of the game. So, but I didn't really think about that. Obviously, all, if teachers are going up the pay scale each year and then you've got the increase as well, it's like, how does the, how do you counteract that deficit? Because you want to withhold onto your good teachers that are gonna that are really good at learning. But you've also kind of got to spot new talent that you can kind of train up that have the right qualities. So what kind of things, when you're kind of interviewing somebody, do you look for? to make sure you're getting the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus. Uh, yeah, so and can I just start by saying this is like, just because the teacher's not good for one school, doesn't they're not great for another one, right? We've all got different cultures and how beauty of the English system is, it's not cookie cutter, right? And I think I'm gonna start there because sometimes somebody needs to get off the bus, they just need to get on a different bus, right? Yeah. You know, they're not going to Croydon, they're going to Hackney, right? Just, just like, uh, that's my London analogy. So <laughs> <laughs> I could say they're not going to like Buck, they're going to sort of like, you know, Adelaide. But I think if I start using Australian analogies, people will get a bit lost. So I, I think here is that, uh, what do I use? So I look for three things, right? I keep it really simple. I look for intellect. 
I look for um, alignment to my mission, and I look for um, an intellect alignment to the mission, and somebody who's willing to learn. I keep it that simple. Uh, and for me, because um, everything else is is teachable. Everything else is teachable. You need good subject knowledge. We know that, but everything else is teachable. So. Don't try and look for things. They might be there, but they're not, the, they're not the thing you need to think about. You need to look for the things that aren't teachable. I can't teach someone to work hard. I can't teach someone to care. I can't give them, uh, you know, when I say intellect, I don't mean being a, a brain or anything. It's like, you know, do you, are you willing to learn? Are you um, someone who's curious? That's what I mean by intellect. That doesn't mean you're, you know, you went to Oxford or anything like that. That's what I talk about those things. So for me, think about what you're actually assessing or, or you want to see and think about what things you can teach and what things you can't teach. And that's for me, just those three things. Keep it simple. And in terms, you talk a little bit as well as about kind of using your middle lead as well. Uh, and quite often they could be quite good for kind of testing out something that you want to do to kind of get work out any niggles before you kind of launch it school wise. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I think like middle leaders are the work engine of the school, aren't they? They're the people who are sort of they're the people sort of allowing it to go on the ground, but also the people who are sort of taking it from SLT. Sometimes it feels like you know holding those people up whilst keeping these people happy underneath them. And I think why are we not engaging them more? So if you want to test something out, just run a little pilot, run it with you know one department, find out what's going on. Find somebody who's enthused about it. You know, so when I did progress teaching and I first brought it in, I took it to my science department. He was good, showed him the benefits. We worked out the niggles. And after we'd done that, then we started rolling it across other departments. But they then become your advocates and it stops being top down and starts to come from bottom up. Like everything is better bottom up, right? It, it, it always is. It's, it's really good. And I think that... Um... If I can just bring you back to a point you mentioned earlier, which I think is connected with this, this with this one, is sort of the phases of a school's evolution. Because hmm. uh, thinking about there's a there's a diagram. I'm just opening my copy. There's a diagram on page 129, and it's the two dimensions, four cultures, and yep. you've got the the sociability and the solidarity, and the networked, communal, fragmented, and mercenary um, cultures, and and you, you really show through your your yarn again how they can be appropriate at different times in your school's evolution i just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about um the role of culture in in what you're sort of trying to um mm. paint the picture of is it drucker who said um a culture eats strategy for breakfast <laughs> i'm not sure who uh, but I've heard uh, i thought it was i thought it was drucker um and i think he was sort of writing for harvard business review but don't quote me on that i probably somebody <laughs> will come in and say you got that all wrong i'm just going to say i'm a mathematician i don't read stuff and just blame it on that <laughs> although we should never say that you know reading is important thing so, <laughs> and i do comment about my value of reading and I, anybody who reads the book will see the joke about me joking about reading so uh, i think culture is everything right because culture I touch on it first of all. Let's. What is culture, right? So, culture is not sweat the small stuff. Culture is not we're inclusive. They're just their catchphrases. They're the equivalent of make America great again, right? That's the equivalent. It doesn't tell you how America is going to be great or what you're actually looking for. It's, it's just a great slogan that people hang on to. So for me, culture is 
the sum of every conversation. Culture is the way we do things around here. So what culture does, it sets the tone for how someone behaves when nobody's looking at them. Mm-hmm. That's what, and, and that's why it's critical, right? You can't, like the culture, that's what people do when no one's looking. And that's what they do when you're not there. Because that to me is what you really want to happen. Whereas everything else, whether it's quality assurance or you know using the stick or anything like that, it'll get you so far. And there's times when you have to do that, especially when a turnaround. But what culture does is it says, this is how we treat people. This is how we behave here. This is the way we do things. And I think that's really important. But, and, you know, I can't say that I've said it about four times now, but it's, it's the sum of, it's the sum of every conversation. And ultimately I'm going to keep saying it. It's, it's what people do when nobody's watching. That's, and I know when I first took over the school, we lost a 30% of the staff left in my first year. So I've just taken over school. We lost 30% of the staff. I lost the vast majority of the master department. You know, uh, some people just poached. They thought um, they thought Bosborn was the TES, and they just started like ringing up people and telling them to come and work in their new school. And um, so, what kept us going? Culture. That was it. You know, you bring in 30% of new staff. It's the staff that are still there. It's that culture. It's that sort of muscle memory that allowed us to keep going and bought us the time until we could bring the new staff on board and, re, and you know, sort of train them in how we wanted them and bring them on board. And I think that's what culture does. It, it affords you time. And, but culture can also be bad, right? You can have a bad culture. You know, I talk a little bit about there when I was a bit mercenary and there were times when I was getting it wrong. And so as a leader, we really need to think about what culture we want, how we're going to measure it, what frameworks are we going to use, that Goffin Jones ones you talk about there. And how you can then be deliberate about that. So we sort of, I then go on to talk about uh, in there sort of some of the levers of culture, you know, identity. Do people feel like they belong? The power, you know, do they feel like they can, you know, they have the ability to affect change in their organization? How does your organization deal with conflict? You know, and how does it deal with learning? I think so when you start thinking about how important culture is, and I love that the quote is culture is strategy for breakfast, and what your culture you want to have, then for me, you need to think about the levers of culture as well, the things you can move and change. And my one piece of advice on this is read some frameworks, go out and read the business theory on this, because I haven't seen a good version of culture and education ever. If there's one out there, please send to me. If you've written it, I'd love to have a look at it. Uh, But it's that idea. (laughs) Yeah, I I feel like someone's going to send something into me going, you've got it wrong. Have you read this? (laughs) I'm like, it's going to be my next assignment. It'll be fine. But, but, but that's what we do. We, we talk about culture being important in schools, but we don't actually know how we measure it. We don't know how to describe it. We don't know how to think about it. And what I was saying is, and this one, this is the idea of the theory, right? And it comes back to that idea of know yourself, know your context, know your theory. And ultimately, what theory does, it gives you a framework mm-hmm. and it gives you a language. Without language, we know this with children. They can't describe something without vocabulary, right? They cannot, they, you know, the biggest issues in school around behavior come from kids who have speech and language difficulties. You ever look at it, look at kids who are excluded, mm-hmm. look at the data, speech and language, right? Because they, they don't have the language with which to express themselves and therefore they, get, they struggle and they get angry about it. And yet, we sometimes walk into leadership and we don't have the language 
or the frameworks with which to describe what we're looking at. And I think that's undervalued. We need the frameworks and the language. And that's what I mean by look at the theory, because it will give you a framework and language to describe what you're seeing and help you to explain that to other people and talk to them about what you want, while also giving you some mechanisms you might want to think about pulling on in order to improve it. So that's what I mean by culture and bringing about separate. I, I, I was very happy to see some of the things that I've learned actually in action in your book, like with the pestle. I was like, oh, my gosh, it's actually a thing. Like, I, I, I spent hours learning how to do that and what it meant. And I was like, how on earth does this like work for education? But that's the nice thing. You've got the lovely yarn and the, and the chat and the, the context. But then you've also got that kind of really gritty theory that leadership can kind of take to really analyse what they're looking at. Because um, I think you said... Uh, looking before you leap is a wise man's game. Um, you have time to breathe, time to think before you act and time to look before you leap. So I, I think that's the thing. A lot of kind of head teachers and things get caught up in the kind of the trend, the analysis or the pressure mm. from um, kind of the big O and kind of don't take that pause and that breath and really look at all the different factors as to how something can work and the down and, and look for the potential risks before they go ahead with something to make sure that it is exactly right for the children to be able to implement. Yeah, you do, don't you? Like that, that the big O does loom, doesn't it? It looms larger over everything. And I, when I originally wrote the book, I was going to not write, say anything about Ofsted. I literally <laughs> had said nothing about them. And I just thought, hmm, don't mention the elephant in the room. That doesn't mean that what leadership book in, written in, the, in England couldn't talk about the biggest thing we all worry about all the time. And I think, isn't that right? You've got to allow yourself the freedom to say, look, I've got a good school. It's good. Good's important for the community. The community needs to know their, their school is effective and their children are getting a good deal. And that's not for Ofsted, but that's what a regulator should do, right? But after that, you need to kind of be brave and say, I'm going to do what's right. And there's going to be times when um, that's going to fit in with what Ofsted are thinking. And there's going to be times when it doesn't. And we just need to do what we know is right. And that's a very, very brave thing to do. And I'm aware a second ago, I was talking about how nervous I was to get the outstanding. But I remember when Victoria Park opened and we had our first Ofsted and it got good in all the areas. And, you know, I've seen people, like I said, I've seen grown men cry over things like that. Um, who you thought were the steeliest people in the world. And I think that I learned from that experience that it's not the end of the world, as much as I said, you know, I felt that when they were there. That school went on. It done a great job. You know, got great progress aid and you could disagree with progress aid. Always, but those kids have gone on to do amazing things and they go on to our sex form. And I think that's what it, you, we've got to keep that. This is about learning and let's keep that at its heart. Um, and I think that takes some real bravery. And I'd like to think I've been that brave all the time, but I haven't. Um, but I keep trying to remind myself to be brave like that and to keep doing it. And I think I wanted to share that idea that I'm trying to be brave, but even I don't get there all the time. And I do worry about it sometimes. And, and I think that's, that's, as I said earlier, it's so clear that this is a very candid book. And I think the the education is, is ready for a bit of... Um, humility and 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 candor so uh, i think that readers who who pick this book up are in for a treat because they will get to see a very interesting and entertaining yarn and they'll also 
sorry it's 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 it is what it is and I feel like there's a kind of the thread running through it and it's 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 amusing and it's personable and it makes you think about yourself as well as um, what you're reading and it doesn't read like a how to check lock check box kind of book it's very much this is a story about how I did it and here's why I think the 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 evidence that supported why these decisions were good decisions and here's what turned out and you're very open about things that have gone wrong and, I, and you can mention it if you want but I'm not going to um, that's your choice but there's a very entertaining story in there um about something you did that turned out <laughs> not quite as you imagined um, oh but... <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not talking about that one I know it's I know exactly which one you're talking about and I can all I'm going to say is I was describing the rain earlier uh, yeah. For those who are listening, you're just like, if you want to think about the worst possible scenario you can think about with children and rain and other stuff that helps you with rain, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> just say, like, I tell you, it, it is possibly uh, the most entertaining story. And I think, do you know what I, when I was telling it, I was, I just thought to myself, like, wouldn't people love to know that Mossborn has made some big mistakes? Like, we were lauded for years and people are oh, oh, this school and it's kind of like, um, you know, a Stalinist boot camp. It's like, isn't it lovely just to know, like, you know, we've made some errors as well and we had to learn from them. Uh, and we've made some doozies. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. But read I, I that. It's an so absolute powerful. doozy. I think yeah. it's so powerful. And I think education, you know, the, the commentators, the, the, people with opinions and the twitter and all we are really ready for some proper like candor and entertainment and sort of uh, you know holding up the mirror and it's really it's, you do such an effective job of that as i say it's entertaining and informative and it makes you go oh goodness yes i can do that or it's not just me you know so thank you <laughs> No, no, uh, it's been it's it's um it's been interesting. Uh, you know, probably my next nervous part is that it comes out and 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 to see what people think. But it's um you know uh, it was I think the most important thing it was just cathartic, and mm. I just felt I had to be true to myself, and I just felt I had to be honest, and I think the world's ready for that. Like I think I agree with you a hundred percent. I think if I'd said something about my past or my history or how I got here or the journey that I went on. 10 years ago, I don't think the world was ready to listen to that. Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel now the world is ready to listen. But I think at the same time, we need to be ready to sort of actually say, not just listen, but let's get back to having a conversation because I feel we've lost that. That's one of the things I feel we've lost recently is like, let's be honest with each other. Let's hear what people have got to say. Even if you hate what they say, at least they've started saying it, we're having the conversation. Let's have the conversation because the conversation has a good chance to lead to a positive outcome. And I think if this book does nothing other than get people to start talking about it and to either agree or disagree or to talk about their story or to talk about their journey, then I love it. I think I've had, I've, I've shared this with a few people and the number of people who've just decided to kind of come up and say to me something like, like you said, like, you know, um, I feel like I've been seen. Like what a beautiful thing to be able to like share with somebody to, to help them be seen. Uh, you know, my lived experiences, I, I know what it's like. I, I, I lived through not being seen. And I just think that's a beautiful thing. I've had people share like a little bit from their life or something challenging that's happened to them. And it's kind of opened that gateway for 
my staff and for other people I work with to and other people I don't well, I imagine even people I don't know to to say, oh, and just to share a little bit of themselves with me. And I just think that's it started. It's been such a blessing. I feel so honored to have people share that little piece of themselves with me um, and to open that door for them because, you know, I'm definitely somebody who wasn't accused of being, um, um, uh, well, I was going to say, I've never been accused of being popular in my life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice to, to open that up and just to say to people, look, you know, despite the steely exterior, there's some sort of real warmth and emotion coming on underneath. And I think my favorite thing was somebody said to me, I feel like I know you for the first time. And I know why you do it. And I thought that was worth all the effort. I feel like I know you and I know why you do what you do. And I think that's, that, that was enough for me. That comment was enough for me. And, it, and that comes across in all your like your little um, guest case studies as well, because they're very like open and honest as well. Like I, I personally like the Katie Bedborough one as a single mum. Oh. The fact that she says about women only apply for jobs if they meet 100 percent of the criteria, is when, whereas men apply for jobs if they only meet 60 percent of the criteria. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that is that is so me. I talk myself out of everything because I'm like, oh, I don't quite quite get all of that and I, I I didn't realize that that was actually a, a thing that we do as women that we kind of <laughs> underestimate ourselves I'm like oh right okay I'm gonna make sure I, I take at least 60 percent and then I'm good to go from now <laughs> exactly exactly like but isn't it great I love isn't Katie's don't you oh, I'm blessed to know Katie I met her during my MBA and she is one amazing woman I just absolutely love her and I don't know if I put it in the case study in the end but she got too deep she got I think a U, a D, and a, like a something else, like an N in her in her in her A levels. So literally, I shouldn't promote this, but if there was a model of what grades not to get at, at when you finish school, Katie was it. I think she got she got a D, uh, an E, and a U uh, at the in her A levels, and she went from that to an MBA at Oxford, like that, like. What, what is that journey that you're on to do that? And I just think, and now she's like, says, says I don't want to give too much about, away about it, but what an amazing woman and what an amazing journey. And to see her and to go see just a touch of her thinking, I think is, is just special. Yeah. But I think that's, that's, that's what's bridge, in it all, isn't, isn't it? it? You know. <laughs> <laughs> Both have the same thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, grit, determination. Um, and yeah, I think... Um, I, I always think about that in education. How do we help kids make, see and how do we help build resilience? Um, the world seems ready to stop everything before every, everything before the, something bad happens. But as we stop everything, like, I would say my background makes me who I am. And I know my background has given me a real steel and determination. And when somebody else I was speaking to about those personal stories, he just said, you know, he, he said with me a really personal story about his dad and losing his dad and, and things like that. And I thought, I thought, you know, would you know, that, it comes to that question, right? Would you trade them off? Would I take a better upbringing, but to lose my resilience? And I, I wouldn't. I, mm. I, I wouldn't change it. I, I, I'm going to keep what I've got. And I think that's really important. Like when we think on these people out there, like oh yeah, things haven't been perfect or whatever else. It's like, but would you trade that? and lose the resilience or something that's, that it's taught you or that sort of like, you know, those lessons. And I think I, I personally, I wouldn't change anything about my life. And when you read it, you'll understand, you know, 
it's an interesting life, I think. And I wouldn't change any of it. I, and I think, I'm not saying that's for everybody. That's important to me. It's made me who I am. I, I completely agree. I think it's the things that we go through in life that makes us who we are. And my, my niece is very, very poorly, bless her. So she's in and out of hospital, but she's in year 11. I think her attendance is about 40%. And she's like, I'm really worried. I'm not going to get into college and go be able to do the A-levels I want because I'm not there. And I'm like, you're so intelligent and you've got so many life skills from being this resilient and having to deal with this condition, but it, you don't let it get to you. And you, you've built this whole kind of persona on on being resilient but still being kind and still yeah. getting on with it despite the circumstances and I'm like you will outgrow any of your peers because you've had that experience and I think and that's what you say about in the book as well it's about it's, it's your community is is previously like oh they all fail they won't get very far they'll they'll all have the same kind of life but you you have this aspiration that if they want to go to university they can do and that's the expected for all of them and you also talk about kind of the artifacts, like the things that you celebrate, as well as results, the the other things that you manage to get them to achieve outside of of kind of just the academics. Yeah, and I think that's important, isn't it? Like uh, whether that's like we've got a rowing club and kids do that, or you know, um, all those different things. I think those are really important. We celebrate everything a child achieves, and I think I sort of say great academic outcomes are just the starting point. I'm not saying we should do these things instead of. They've got to be in addition to, and kids should get great academic outcomes because that's valuable. And for some of my kids, we can love or hate exams or love or hate the system. They are the only scores on the door they've got. And if they don't get scores on the door, then that could limit the rest of their life. Or it doesn't mean they can't go to university like your niece or do it a little bit later and, 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 and sort of, but for some of our children, they may not get that second chance. They may not get another go or life will take a turn where that's not going to be possible for a few years. So I do think scores on the door are important, but they're not everything, right? Because without those life skills, the scores on the door aren't going to take you that far. Yeah, no, I, that's, I really agree with that. Really, really good. Sorry, Hannah, go on. No, 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 I was going to say... I was, <laughs> I was, I was just waiting say... for one of you to talk. <laughs> I was going to say, because obviously you, you talk about being unashamed, unashamedly academic. And mm. I, I think that's something that all schools should have kind of aspiration wise. Mm. We shouldn't like kind of have this kind of level of where we think we should get. There, there should be this kind of as teachers of professions, we should be so proud of what we do. Mm. And we should have this aspiration that every student can do better and can can achieve. There's not kind of oh, you can only get to this level. And I think that comes across throughout and and thinking about how as a leadership you manage your whole team and how you build those relationships to make sure you get where you want them to be. Yeah, so I think I, I want to pick up on something here, which is not in the book, but a, a story. Is that, so I went to school in Australia. And so when I did my the equivalent of my A-levels, which is more like a baccalaureate, so I had to do like six subjects, I was doing the equivalent of further maths alongside automotive engineering uh, automotive so i was in a further maths class and then i could be down under a car bonnet pulling an engine apart and that was complete that but that wasn't that abnormal in australia well okay i was the only one who was really doing that extreme of both sides of that but that didn't stop me from going to university it wasn't it wasn't a detractor from getting into university and i think about um and we get more subjects at six but i don't understand this kind of complete dichotomy about oh oh those who can do the GCSEs and those who can't do vocationals. What? 
I don't know what that's about. Like, like vocational is like this easy option. And I come back to the good doctor, good plumber thing. Uh, I, I think we've got it all a bit wrong where if you can't do that, then you're seen as a second class citizen. Like, oh, no, we push them into there. We've moved away from, we've just said, do you know what? Um, the biggest decision we've made is that our teachers now, like, so we're looking at what kids do. We're looking at this idea of saying, do we need to examine everything kids study? So kids need a certain number of grades, but why can't they do a subject for the joy of doing the subject rather than having to have it examined? Because mm. maybe that's actually valuable. And I mean, up to year 11, that's a radical idea, but I imagine a child studying something, maybe it's an hour a week, even in year 11, and not doing a GCSE in it because you don't need the grade. You just, it's just, just the fun of learning itself or the joy. That's a radical idea in this sort of day and age about of performance tables and everything else. I think we need, that's the sort of radical candor, that's the sort of radical attitudes I think we need to have. It doesn't mean stepping outside the system like you're seeing some of the private schools and creating their own system because all that's doing is creating an elitist culture that we in the state sector can't get a hold of and what they're doing is recreating a little thing for themselves, mm. a little club, and they're recreating their club. And our job in the state sector is to say, no, 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 no. The club is the government club, whether we like it or hate it. This is the club. These are the important grades because we need our system to be fair. And we need children from all backgrounds to be able to access that. And I haven't come up with a better system that makes exams not the best, one of the best levelers. You know, we saw this during COVID, don't we, didn't we, where private schools, wealthier school, well, people from wealthy backgrounds got better grades. They didn't all of a sudden get brighter. Basically, they just knew how to elbow better. And yeah. that's, you know, I'd love to replace exams by something, but we've got to think kids should study for the love of studying. They should get scores on the door, but it doesn't have to be for everything they do. And we've got to create that space for, for enjoyment and, and fun while still getting the grades and still realizing these kids need those scores to get onto the next stage of their life. But I want to figure a way out. If I had my wish tomorrow, I definitely would try and figure out a way where uh, more kids could do uh, what, what would be determined vocational subjects. And I don't just mean, I mean like the top kids. My nephew uh, went to a school. Uh, it's called Yanko Ag. <laughs> yeah, it literally is a school mm. where kids go to learn to be farmers, right? So uh, this is Australia, so we'll just sort of park that for a bit. But everybody with that school had to do a vocational subject as part of their A-levels. It was compulsory. Mm. And he went off to Newcastle University and he went off to, um, to study engineering at the best university in Australia to do engineering. And do you know what his vocational course was? He learned how to be a barista. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't stop him. And that's the important thing. We're kind of getting caught up in things. And I think we need to really think in, in England about what do we want out of education? Mm. And I think that's the conversation we need to be having. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, unfortunately, we've, we've lived a long time in a system that squeezes um, things towards efficiency rather than richness. And, you know, unfortunately, when workload pressures come along and the big O comes along and people go, right, well, how can I be more efficient? And actually, these sort of the, the joy of it, the, the why of it, that can somehow perhaps be squeezed out. And I think you're absolutely right. That's that's a, a really important conversation that we need to have um, in education to to really ensure that people 
end up loving learning and being open to their learning opportunities rather than feeling like it's a hoop to be jumped through. Yeah, exactly. Why not? You know, um, like I said, why don't we just have something that like so we're going to have all of our kids study in art, right? You can either study yes. it as an actual subject, but you can study it as a subject or you can just study in art because you want to, you, you, um, you think it's, we think it's important. And so you can get around things like the progress eight measures and everything else. And we still do that. And don't, I look at the progress tables. I'm not going to lie. I look at them. I look at them every year. Yes. I, I, I do agree with progress tables. I know that's probably controversial. I know who looks after your channel. I know he doesn't. Uh, but to me, but they, they don't have, to, it doesn't have to be either or these things you can do and you just got to create the space in your school's curriculum to do them. And you've got to show everybody they're important. And I think it's possible. It's about being, we're just going to, I'm starting to be a little bit braver um, and think about what we can do differently. Well, I, I'm just going to remind anyone who's enjoyed listening to the show, because this is just literally a little section of what the book is about, uh, which is available from Bluesbury Education, and it's out on the 7th of December. So what a Christmas present. Put it on your Christmas list and you can get 35% off if you use the code HUGHES35, so H-U-G-E-S-3-5. And um, we've come to the end of our show, but I just mm. want to say thank you so much for joining us. I knew I was like, oh, so I could literally talk to you all evening about education um and i've just absolutely loved it and it, it's it's that thing it's the fact that it's children are at the center of everything and you need to know your why and and they are your why um but you can't do it without good people and good systems and i just can't recommend the book enough because there's great little funny antidotes but also there's real kind of data and practical strategies and real kind of thought content within there so thank you so much for hey me getting a, a lovely advanced coffee and getting to read that um, <laughs> I know, i've already crazy. quoted you in can one I, of my essays so can i can, um, I, can, can, can I just say oh wow i feel blessed please i'd love to see that oh wow my mum will be so happy i think um, <laughs> I, i'm nearly 50 years old i'm still talking about my mum i know i know you know when do we not I, I, can i just thank you so much uh for sort of reading the book can i just say does that mean you've actually seen the physical book yeah Oh, I've got it here. No, I haven't My got hot it. Yet. Little hand. I've not seen it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so it, it arrived to it. literally today. Oh, yeah. wow. I'm going to have to complain to them about why I haven't got a copy. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I was frantically copying over all my highlights. So I was like, oh, I can hold the book. <laughs> oh, well, I've just got a big paper copy in front of me. But so, yeah, thank you, Hannah and Katie. And thank you so much. And um, I've, I've really loved it. Um, and oh, it's been a lovely journey. And I just want to say to people, like, you know, I feel blessed that you want to read my words and I feel blessed that you want to hear about my story. And um, yeah, I hope you're able to take something away from it and I hope you enjoy reading it. So yeah, and maybe one day I'll get to see, uh, see you in person. So yeah, thank you very yeah, much. That'd be, that'd be brilliant. And uh, thank you so much for your time this evening. It's been really great. No worries. Thank you very much and uh, enjoy the rest of your evening and goodbye to everybody out there. Thank you. If you've missed any of tonight's show and it was a corker and you want to listen to it all, you can go find it on the Teachers Talk Radio and listen back later today. So thank you very much. Have a lovely week and we'll see you soon. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward Absolutely. to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.